Listening Dog Media. How to DJ. How to DJ. DJ. How to DJ. It didn't feel like work. It was just like a really sort of passionate energy experience. Hello, I'm Chris Hawkins and this is How to DJ. I wouldn't say control freak, but definitely discipline is something that works really well for me. Know your music, know your crowd and just enjoy yourself. How to DJ. A podcast that explores the life stories, techniques, minds and experiences of much-loved DJs, where I ask them to pick five questions from a box of 45. This weird thing called music you know what is it and for this episode a dj born and raised in west london it was like being in a nightmare and at the same time also just really beautiful because it was my childhood he joined radio one in 2002 and i just remember thinking in some dream alternative britain there'll be an asian music show on radio one maybe i'll be able to work on it or maybe even be the presenter but that was that was too far right i'd only been djing a year it was uh, surreal. It was very heavily Asian, you know, South Asian. And that hadn't been heard before on the radio. And he's one of the foremost champions of the British Asian sound. I was like, this is it. This is what I've been waiting for. This is my second summer of love. This is my punk moment. This is my hippie moment. This this is it. It's, it's, this is for me. Bobby Friction, welcome to How To DJ. Hey, thank you very much, Chris. It's an honor to actually be here. <laughs> Bobby, thank you. Before heading into the box of questions, tell me about life growing up in West London. What was family life like? Family life, um, you know, it's only now I realise how separate um, my generation of British Asians grew up. The 70s and 80s were, you know, dark times for everyone. Um, For us, honestly, uh, it was like being an animal in a zoo. It was like being in a nightmare and at the same time also just really beautiful because it was my childhood so you know the zoo analogy is the fact that we didn't really fit into Britain um you know when I was growing up it was only 10 years after the mid 60s so there were you know whole years where I would walk down the street and everyone's head would just turn you know every granny every person on the street. So certainly now that I'm 50, I'm kind of breaking it down and going, wow, that's really mad. And that's made me like this. And that must have meant that for my little brain. How did that make you feel as a kid? Well, once again, you're resilient when you're a kid because you don't know. You don't actually understand stuff. I now look back and realise that I was getting, a lot of the time, really bad energy pushed into me. And as a believer of energies, You know, I didn't realise at the time. I just thought life was was shit. And this is how everyone lived their life. But when you realise, as we moved into the 80s, I realised what racism was, what prejudice was. Also, just, you know, a kind of understanding of, well, that was a mad time, wasn't it? Because 10 years before I was born, there was nobody apart from my dad and maybe a couple of, I don't know, 20, 30,000 people like my dad or like me. Then 10 years later, there's lots of us. And then 10 years after that, I started to grow up and, you know, with the help of my white brothers and sisters and my black brothers and sisters, I realised what racism was. But I can tell you now, at the age of 50, I now realise that for a lot of people of colour, that era, my generation, it was a trauma and everything that's happened since has been within the shadow of a post-traumatic stress disorder reaction. Whoa, 
Tell me, Bobby, about life as a teenager in West London then. Yeah, sorry to get heavy, but you asked, all right? Um, Life as a teenager. Look, for me, my teenage years were basically covered in two kind of emollients. One was racism, but the other one was Prince. And honestly, both were equal. I couldn't separate the two. Prince to me wasn't just you know, the love of my life and the person who was on my wall and the albums I listened to. To me, he was a prophet, a guru, and a messiah. And because I felt life was so bad, his messiah-like arrival in my life really did save my life. You say that you've really only become aware of how bad life was in your older years. But can you give me an example of day-to-day life? Your love of Prince being a distraction, I guess. Yeah, so day-to-day life, you know, I had it like anyone else in my age. I grew up with, you know, uh, Why Don't You, Cracker Jack and all that kind of stuff. I, I loved watching TV. I loved the arrival of the VHS video recorder so I could record programs. I watched Top of the Pops religiously. I went to school because I obviously talk to a lot of my school friends now decades later and I said you know it was mad wasn't the racism directed at me really mad and a lot of my white friends were just like really oh my god I didn't notice it so you know it was the same but it was kind of different and then I had my home life which really was um, a mixture of (laughs) post-traumatic stress disorder but then also east disease stroke you know Anita and me there was quite a lot of laughter there's a lot of misunderstandings, the usual stuff that happens between parents and teenagers. So, yeah, you know, a, a normal, good old Generation X upbringing in Britain with lots of added Asianness, a lot of humour, a lot of colour, and then this thread of, I'm going to call it amorphous hate, kind of running through all of it. How did you get into Prince? So everything was pretty simple, really. Um, I watched the video for When Doves Cry, and I mean, it was like a revelation. I, I hadn't heard music like it. I actually watched it on a school trip to Boulogne, as we used to do in the 80s, you know, and it was on one of these little TV screens on the ferry and uh, instantly entranced, like, you know, it really was first love, chemicals going all over the place. So then when I got home, I started doing a bit of research. I heard 1999, I brought Purple Rain, I became obsessed. My first CD, because I got brought a CD player for my, uh, I think it was 14th or 15th birthday, was Around the World in a Day. And that actually, not Purple Rain, that was the entry point into all music for me, all music from the Western canon, because a review called it his Sergeant Pepper. And I went to school and I had a friend whose dad was a rock musician. And I said to him, oh, look, this is... I didn't even know what Sergeant Pepper was at the time. But this is like apparently his answer to the Beatles, Sergeant Pepper. And that's when my friend just came in the next day and went, here's Sergeant Pepper. Oh, my dad loves Hendrix. Here's Hendrix. And so Prince then became the entry point for the entire canon and the history of Western popular music. I'd listen to his R&B and then research R&B. I'd love his guitar solos and go via Hendrix into the blues and into psychedelia. And we now know that Prince made every genre of music and genres we've never heard of before. So I actually had the best guide and the best entry point into music. And 
my life changed forever thanks to him. What do you think it was about Prince that made him such an icon, so special, so different? There's two answers to that. There's the answer to the question you've just asked, which is, look, he's a once in a century, maybe once in an epoch kind of artist. I remember at the time, maybe, you know, pushing it a bit too far and saying, he's pop music's Mozart or Beethoven, not even knowing exactly what Mozart or Beethoven were famous for. But now that he's gone and transitioned to the other side, people talk about him in those aspects. And I think for him to do that in that really interesting period that Generation X is famous for, which is the switch from analog to digital, you know, that whole thing that when I get together with my friends and I'm like, boomers won't know what's going on and nor do any of these Generation Zers or even the millennials, you know, I think he was the right artist at the right time in the right era of popular music to come along and just ride that wave on behalf of all of us. On a personal level, I've already mentioned that he was like a messiah to me, and I really mean that using religious language. He he is my prophet and my guru, but I think his ambiguity when it came to race really helped a lot of British Asians I know because he was black. I mean, he's ostensibly one of the most black musicians ever. But the way he presented himself was um, very much like a lot of South Asians see themselves, where we kind of see ourselves at the confluence of so many different racial stereotypes and, and colour and hair and all that kind of stuff. So to me, he just looked like a Bollywood star for me, not for my mum and dad. You know, all the gold, all the clothing, all the histrionics and all the drama. So, yeah, Mozart, but also Messiah as well, personally. One of my biggest regrets is I turned down a ticket to see him. Did you ever get to see him live? Yeah, I mean, I'm going to really sound like an idiot now. I, I saw him live 23 times. What? <laughs> That's Look, when you become obsessed with Prince at the age of 15, there was enough times and he did enough gigs. There are friends of mine who are Prince fans who laugh at my 23 times. For me, I'd never been to a gig at the age of 15. And I'd gotten into Prince. I'd never heard loud music. Maybe, I don't know, a wedding or something. And even then, not that loud. I was in the Our Price in Camden High Street. And I knew Prince was coming. This is for the parade tour in 86. And I just went in and I said, oh, have you got any Prince tickets? And I'd been asking for months and they'd sold out. And they said, oh, we've had two returned. And um, I literally begged them to put them aside for me. Anyway, to cut a long story short, my first ever experience of music through amplification and big speakers in a stadium-like interface was, I think it was August the 13th, 1986, and I was front row for Prince on the parade tour. And um, once again, you know, all these religious metaphors, I was converted instantly. And uh, honestly, I met God that night. I'm still so resentful of my friend for having a 30th birthday on the night that I could have seen him. Did you ever get to meet him? Never. I, I saw him up close once. I mean, I saw him up close uh, a lot of his after parties. I never got to meet him, but the, I count this as meeting him, all right? Because even when you speak to famous rock stars and they talk about meeting him, it's not like them meeting a person. It's like meeting a, a fairy, an apparition, a ghost, and all that kind of stuff. So on the Love Sexy Tour in 1988, we camped outside the hotel and we'd wait for Prince and his band to walk out the hotel. Often he left through a back entrance and we'd meet the band. Then because of London traffic, even then in the 80s, we'd get to Wembley first 
on the tube. So we'd be there to wave them in as they drove in every day. And obviously they were there from pretty early because Prince put people through ridiculous, you know, multi-hour long sound checks. And he never travelled with the band. He drove past, he'd stop, and there'd be about 15 of us, and then he'd drive in. We never saw him because the windows were blacked out. On the last night of the tour, he wound down the window, and he looked at me directly in the eye and just went, I mean, that's what I think he did. It could have been someone else. (laughs) I felt the electricity of Prince literally going, I see you. And then he drove in. (laughs) Do you think Prince is the reason why you wanted to work in music? Yeah, totally, because what Prince did, um, I wouldn't even say in a beautiful, I mean, it was a beautiful way for me, for my, my spiritual side of music, but he destroyed any ability of me to actually just work in a normal job or even appear normal to the outside world. And, and until I was about 25 or even act normal. So I just knew after that, if I wasn't going to get close to Prince, I was going to get close to this thing, uh, this, this, this weird thing called music. You know, what is it? It's, it's, it's spiritual, it's religious, it cuts through buildings, it, it sees no race, it sees no, no sex, no gender, or that's how Prince had sold it to me. So yeah, after that, I knew I needed to work in music, whatever happened, and, and I have, luckily. When did you first get behind the decks? Um, 1997, at the Blue Note in Hoxton Square. This was about a year after Talvin Singh had started his Anoka Club Nights. So the Asian underground that happened in the late 90s that Talvin was kind of part of and Nathan Sawney was part of. For me, that was the second nodal point after falling in love with Prince because I'd gone on to uni to do creative and contemporary arts and music and everything I did was seen through this brown lens I mean back then I was criticized for it I even had course tutors going what are you doing you're obsessed with race I now look back and go oh my god I was doing totally the right thing because I was doing what all artists do expunging something from within myself and trying to tell a deeper truth about society so when the Asian underground happened I because I'd gone away to Nottingham and come back, and the Asian Underground happened pretty much within a year of me coming back from uni. I was like, this is it. This is what I've been waiting for. This is my second summer of love. This is my punk moment. This is my hippie moment. This is this is my my Grebo moment. This this is it. It's it's this is for me. So I couldn't DJ. I was too embarrassed, I think, to DJ because everyone arrived, all the other DJs arrived fully formed and became superstars instantly. And no one asked me, and I was never brave enough to ask. But I was kind of like a known face around the scene. And I remember what happened. One night, I was walking through the Blue Note, and the playwright, Pav Bansal, came up to me, and he went, have you seen Quadrophenia? And I went, yeah. Because you know Sting? He was the face, wasn't he? I went, yeah. He goes, you're the face of this scene. And he meant it in a disparaging way, you know, because in Quadrophenia, by the end of it, no one wants to be Sting, right? No one wants to be the face. Uh, and he said that to me and it really hurt. And then later on that night, he said, you look amazing. You've got so much to give. You need to start making music or DJing. And yeah, I got asked to DJ by one of the promoters. And um, the rest, for me at least, was history. My first gig was not 97, 1998 in the Blue Note in Hoxton Square. And uh, it kicked off, properly kicked off and went off massively. and. Uh, I never turned around after that. How did that turn into radio, Bobby? Um, I never had any plans for radio. I just remember obsessing over Radio 1 
And just by the time I'd started DJing, I remember thinking, isn't it weird? Because this was the specialist era of Radio 1. So there was always a face, an obsessive for each genre. So, you know, they were already there, whether it was Peel, uh, that's every genre, whether it was Trevor Nelson doing R&B, Westwood at the time, he was the face of hip hop. And I just remember thinking, in some dream alternative Britain, there'll be an Asian music show on Radio 1. And um, maybe I'll be able to work on it or produce it or, or maybe even be the presenter. But that was that was too far, right? I'd only been DJing a year. And uh, I started off, just once again, these things happen by mistake, don't they? My friend's dad set up an RSL, a restricted service license FM station in Southall, the heart of the Asian community in West London. And uh, he just went, we need a couple of DJs. We need people to, you know, present shows. I went in did a pilot, and they went, do you want to be the first voice on the station and present the first show? So that started happening, and I never thought about it until the legends, Paul Thomas and Reese Hughes at Radio 1, put a call out across the Asian scene for a possible Asian music show. And yeah, even that was weird, you know? <laughs> I believed in Prince. I took his energy close to my heart, and within three months, uh, I was on air. How was your first show? It was uh, yourself and Nihal. Yeah, well, it wasn't live. We pre-recorded for the first couple of months because we were on, I think we were on from three till five. After Fabio and Groove Rider and before The Blue Room with Rob the Bank and, and Chris Coco. So the first, I mean, look, come on, it's Radio 1, right? It doesn't matter if it's a pre-record or not. I went home and uh, I cried that night. Not, not, not massively. I shed a tear or two. I'm a Radio 1 DJ. This is ridiculous. You know, I remember having a dream when I was seven or eight that Abba came into my school, came into my classroom and went, uh, he's joining our band. <laughs> I remember really enjoying that dream when I was young. Being a radio on DJ was 10 times better than that dream becoming true. I'm doing a radio on show. I'm playing the music that's defined my life. And um, in a really weird way, I'm representing my community as well. It was I mean, I'll never, ever, ever get that high again, and I don't need that high again. It was amazing. How long did the show last for? The show lasted, with me involved, for seven years. I then left of my own accord for various reasons. Things can get very stressful at Radio 1. I didn't realise it back then, but um, I was having mental health issues. My mental health was suffering because of the Radio 1 show. By then, I'd already started doing five nights a week on the Asian network, so I just told the controller at the time I couldn't do it anymore, and he went, please do it, and I went, I really can't unless all of this changes, and he said it can't change, so I left. So seven years with Nahal, and I think Nahal did it for another two and a half, maybe three and a half years after I left. The reason for asking how long it was on for is because it made such a big impact. You know, look, I'll tell you why it made a really big impact. And this is about exalting Radio 1 and really, really uh, cherishing me and Nahal, our professional relationship. But it's also a slight criticism of what's happening now in Britain or within the media. The reason it made such a big impact was because me and Nahal were larger-than-life characters. When we arrived, we arrived fully formed separately as people who were just ready to take over the world. So together, the force was unstoppable. Secondly, and, you know, I hate this word now, but our banter was legendary. It was ridiculous. There was just so much stuff going on. It was laddie. 
It was psychedelic. It was uh, surreal. It was very heavily Asian, South Asian. Um, that hadn't been heard before on the radio. So it was all those reasons. But I think also back then, places like Radio 1 and certain parts of the music industry, they were still running on the energy of the second summer of love and the 80s and, and all the glory of Britpop in the 90s. And the reason I bring those things up is that I think those eras meant there were a lot of mavericks within radio and also within the music industry. That doesn't happen now, which is why you can have all the Asian music on the Asian network, which is one of the best stations I've ever worked for. But it means people in the culture at large will go, well, that's not for me because my name's Trevor or my, my name's Sandra and we're, we're, we're at this age. So, yeah, it was brilliant because it was everything at the right time. And that wouldn't happen these days. And I think that's really sad. Do you think that there should be a show like that one that you did on national radio outside of the Asian network, do you think? Yeah, because just on a very basic level, the amount of people I've met who aren't Asian who just go, I loved your Zanar show, I got introduced to ABC and D, and they're not doing it because they're not going to the Asian network. And one of the reasons they're not going to the Asian network is not because the Asian network's doing anything wrong, it's because possibly they only will get their culture through Six Music and Radio 1. Radio 1 when they're younger, Six Music when they're older, or Radio 2 when they're older. So those outposts, those little satellites out there floating through the galaxy of music are really important, and those satellites aren't there anymore. Why do you think that the British Asian sound that you're so passionate about and such a pioneer of, why hasn't it become part of the what's considered mainstream? Wow, wow, wow. Okay, it's such a complicated question. I'm going to try and answer it simply. Now, on one level, uh, and this is very true, I think maybe 20 years ago, you had a language issue, all right? So you just had people going, I'm not going to listen to that or just switching off because nearly every track was sung in a South Asian language. Things have changed since then, all right? So things should be different. Number one is people like my son, whose playlist is nearly all Latino. And he doesn't understand a single word. But that generation's growing up because of Spotify and streaming services and algorithms just going, that's a really good groove. That's a really good piece of music, all right? The other reason, honestly, is about the subliminal politics of race in music as exercised. <laughs> I sound like an academic. Um, as exercised in Western culture. Some people might find this a bit insulting or a bit controversial. I think there is a massive cultural interplay between white Western people and black people of African origin in America and in Britain, which means that, in a way, white people love black music. And why wouldn't they? It's the basis of popular culture. And I will bow down at the feet of all black music. But I do feel that the levers in the music industry, the power is held by, by white people of a certain generation, and they've never wanted to be Asian. They don't want to be Latino. They don't want to be anything. They wouldn't mind culturally, maybe not physically, being black. So because of that, and this is a very simple answer to a very complicated question, I think so much of what we consume as music lovers is down to subliminal forces sometimes that we don't even understand. 
I'll give you a really simple example. Uh, a really close friend of mine, uh, a white friend of mine, I said something a couple of months ago to them about my show, and they just remarked, oh, that's brilliant. I'll have a listen, but it's not really aimed at me, is it? What they meant by that was, was it's the Asian network, and they meant this very nicely. It's not something I should be listening to or something I'd reach out to. What's really weird is there's no way in a million years he would even think that about any form of black music. And I don't just mean black music made in England or in America. He wouldn't actually say that about a lot of African music either, because even in latter years, even African music started to be sucked into the connoisseurs kind of uh, foundation. Asian music isn't there. South Asian music isn't there. It's ridiculous, if you ask me, because some of the best music in the world today is being made in South Asia and by the diaspora. So, yeah, it's about race as well as language. But that language thing, you know, Spotify's killed that. Will it change? Well, it's ultimately going to change. I never foresaw Spotify killing the language question. But my son especially is a great example of someone who let an algorithm feed into his musical heart and not his linguistic heart. So the algorithms just said, you really like this. Here's some J Balvin. You really like that. Here's an Argentinian artist. So with me as his dad, he doesn't see any difference between any of these musics. And he doesn't understand even the South Asian stuff, let alone the Latino stuff. So maybe something will come along like an algorithm that will disrupt it. But the politics of race, which I think drive this stuff at the moment, this is an attack on anyone. It's just the way things are, you know. Young white kids see black culture as theirs or as something they can co-opt. And that includes the music. They don't see that with any other form of music. That's going to take a lot longer unless something from left field like an algorithm comes along and just destroys it. I uh, agree with you 100%. You make the case so brilliantly. I've not heard that case made so succinctly ever before. Well, that's good because that's all my own thinking and I haven't read it anywhere, so I need to formalise it. Bobby, time for your five questions from the record box here of 45, all on 45 sleeves. I'll dip in. You tell me when to pull them out. You say when? When. Who do you have to thank? The only three people worth thanking in my life. Uh, Prince, my mother and my father. By the way, my mother and father, they may be a mother and father from the outside, but they're Maharaja and a Maharani. They're a king and queen for me. A king, a queen and a prince, eh? <laughs> I didn't even think of that. Oh, my God. There you go. <laughs> Interesting that Prince came first. Oh, okay. Well, don't tell my mum and dad. <laughs> they really are amazing. I just want to say this. Like, I came home wearing makeup and eyeliner and all kinds of stuff, which a lot of my Robert Smith and Cure fans did as well. But for my mum and dad, that was shocking. They couldn't believe it. They were horrified. They, they had nervous breakdowns. Uh, but they let me do all this stuff. They let me be ambiguous about my sexuality and let me choose my religion freely. And a lot of South Asian parents never did that. So they really are. The king and queen. Awesome. DJ, DJ. How to DJ with Chris Hawkins. Still to come. These guys are the children of the cut and paste gods. They blaspheme on, a, on an audio level on every track and I love it. It was shit that I buried at the point of my greatest triumph. My self-sabotage went... Back into the box for question two. Say when? Where? Question two for you is, when you're DJing, how much of what you do is instinct and how much is experience? Uh, 
Oh, wow. The instinct part is really important. These people who turn up at gigs and you hear them playing the same set, I think they should be arrested and led away screaming to uh, musical prison cells, all right? You need that instinct, but I've always had some kind of skeleton. You need the skeleton. I mean, one thing I always do on the day of the gig is work out what my opening tune is. It usually changes 10 seconds before I start DJing, but that has to be right. And I kind of know what I'm going to finish with. Uh, and then everything else is just instinct, really. Do you have a favourite opener? Um, I don't have a favourite opener anymore uh, because people remember this stuff. And in this day of social media, they'll kill you for it. What I used to do, though, at the Blue Note, was I used to play a big, fat sitar drone over the Royal Guards at Buckingham Palace playing God Save the Queen. So you'd have them playing it in brass and then this sitar drone getting louder and louder until the sitar drone killed God Save the Queen and then I'd hit the beats in. Fantastic. <laughs> Love it. What else is uh, in your sets? You know, your regulars. Um, because my DJ foundation was always kind of drum and bass and, and house, albeit with a South Asian vibe, I am an electronic music DJ. You know, I have gone out and done, you know, indie sets, sets from the 80s. A good DJ can do any kind of set. But what I'm famous for and what I always do is play drum and bass and house. And then in the last 10 years, dubstep. So I'm a, a UK bass head, a house dubstep and drum and bass head. But you'll never hear me play a set without South Asian stuff going on constantly. And what big favourites? Oh, what big favourites? Oh, things have changed so much. I mean, I still actually, weirdly, I play Talvin. Just always when I've got, like, whatever the latest drum and bass is, Talvin's first album that won the Mercury Music Prize, OK, has tracks that are drum and bass in terms of time signatures, but aren't drum and bass at all. So... Weirdly enough, they're timeless, so you can always drop them in, even in 2022. And um, back in the day, until it became the theme tune for every curry ad on TV, Mundion Tabachke from Punjabi MC, you could play to anyone, anywhere in the world, drop that tune, and the speakers would just come down. <laughs> uh, what about current artists, by the way? Who are you recommending? Okay, just generally, uh, away from the dance floor, there's some people you really need to fall in love with. And one is, you know, Rizwan Ahmed, the actor. Yes. I thought his debut album, uh, The Long Goodbye, was one of the most amazing pieces of British Asian work in decades. And that came out just before we went into lockdown in 2020. It's musically ambitious. It's lyrically outrageous and political and spiritual and hilarious as well. And you totally forget the fact that he's an amazing actor uh, until the end of the album when you just go, stop winning Oscars and record more music, bro. He's really amazing at the moment. And a lot of the music around the Daytimers Collective, which is all very young in their early 20s, they think they're like a reincarnation of what we did in the late 90s with the Asian Underground. And they call themselves the new South Asian Underground and stuff like that. Everything they do is really good because they've got a completely different approach than my generation does in terms of how they add the spicy South Asian bits. You know, we used to do it in a certain way where we were paying homage. These guys are the children of the cut and paste gods. They blaspheme on, a, on an audio level on every track, and I love it. You know who I'm really into is Anish Kumar. Yes, yes. Oh, God. 
Yeah. The Bollywood disco uh, vibe, that, that, that EP. Yeah. What a dude. I'm playing Southerner at the moment on my Asian network chain. That's a bit mad because I'm doing the six till eight show. I'm playing that too. It's got a, is it a Pet Shop Boys sample in it? I'm not sure. I'm going through the South Asian samples. <laughs> yeah. Listen out for that. What Bollywood movie is it from? And then there's the other one, the last one on the album, uh, which I think is called Lata, which I've had some friends say it's bicep, it means Bollywood. And other people say it's the Chemical Brothers meets Bollywood. Either way, I think that pretty much describes the whole of that EP. Great EP, man. Yeah. All right, back into the box, Bobby, for question three for you. Say when. When. Ah, now I think I might know the answer to this, but let's see. When and where was the greatest night of your DJing life? Oh. Oh, okay. I thought you'd answer straight away with uh, New Year's Eve Bangalore. Oh, okay. So you did. <laughs> yeah, all right. Yeah. That's what I was going to say. Yeah. Because that gig, just the numbers involved, the fact that I was the main act, you know, like, look, let's face it. A lot of us DJs, we're great, all right? But there's always a little, you know, lead guitarist in us. So when you get to, especially in those days, this was, uh, I think it was 2004 or 2005, I drove into Bangalore, the country of my mum and dad's birth, and my face was all over the city. And I played to like, I think it was 12,000 people, uh, you know, playing the midnight set as well. It was just amazing. It was, it was like, I've headlined, I've managed to pull more than 10,000 people into an outdoor space just to come and see me. I can die tomorrow. <laughs> like a spiritual experience. Yeah. How did you know that I played in Bangalore? I, well, you know what? I have a feeling I was sort of aware of it at the time. And then I started doing some, a little bit of reading up on you. And I was really into your show, you know, on Radio 1. And, you know, I didn't say this earlier, but... I always felt a little bit uncomfortable that it was like a ghetto eye show, that it was like, here's our contribution to Asian music. It's for two hours once a week. And that's where I was going with the, the conversation about why British Asian music hasn't become more mainstream, why it's not on playlists on a regular basis on other stations. You're right. My, my daughter also is into like Latino and that confuses me even further because it's worked for the Latino sound, but not closer to home, if you like. Yeah. But I think that's the politics of Britain, which is why I then brought in race afterwards, because even the Latin thing, that's still a recent innovation or a recent happening. So we're possibly not too far away, but it is weird. I mean, look, if you move the newsreaders and home secretaries aside, if you sit and watch TV and you're an alien landing, you could be forgiven for thinking this country only had white people in it with a minority of black people. You wouldn't have Asian people in it because you can go for hours without seeing any Asian face unless it's the news, you know, just in terms of normal stories, normal dramas. Anyway, look, look, I don't want to uh, bring it down, but yeah, hopefully our children will be the. This is what every generation says, right? Hopefully our children will be the people who fix it all. Yeah, a lot of what you're saying, my wife is uh, half Asian, her dad's Pakistani, and so much of what you're saying echoes what she has said to me ever since I've known her. Okay, question four. So say when. When? What do you wish you'd never done? Um, all right, me and the Har won a Sony Award six months into our show. And um, first of all, it was massive. I mean, we got told this. You've been nominated for a Sony. 
you guys have been nominated for Best Specialist Programme. You've only been on air five months. So this is amazing. To cut a long story short, especially back in those days, I dealt with the stress and the pressure of that by drinking massively uh, in the lead up to uh, the night of the Sonys and then on the night of the Sonys. And um, all that happened was, was we went up. Uh, it just felt surreal. I think Nahal marched up with a cigar the size of a baby's arm in his mouth. I remember time slowing down. Nicholas Parsons was there watching us. Annie Nightingale giving us the award. And then I got past the mic and I just said, so nothing to do with music or radio, nothing I'd ever, ever said or verbalised before. I just went, yeah, yeah, something along the lines of, we're growing in a hundred years' time. We'll have taken over the country. <laughs> that with lots of F-bombs and lots of expletives. So first of all, afterwards, it was like, you're a legend, or that was mad, why did you say that? I had people at Radio 1 going, well, let's see if uh, the controller says something to you. Uh, you know, that was a bit weird, wasn't it? And it's only now I look back and I realise it was such a shit, I think, thing to say, because I'm not here to take over a country. I'm not here to obsess over demographics. That's what racists do. I get why I did it that night. It's because it was shit that I buried and I'm a self-sabotager. At the point of my greatest triumph, my self-sabotage went and did all this stuff. So I don't so much regret saying it. It's just I didn't really believe it that much, but it came out because deep down when we won that award and it was for an Asian music show, all this anger that had been building up since 1971 just all came out in one phrase. So, yeah, sorry. I think it's really obvious to understand why you you know you by this stage were a voice that you had a platform. It, it was an opportunity to address issues. But it was also an opportunity to really celebrate the show, really celebrate producers and APs, and also to say something funny. Because one thing that me and Nahar realised at the time when we were doing our show was we got through loads of quite salient and quite deep points through humour. When I said that thing, I didn't say it with humour. I was like a tiger screaming as I broke out of a cage. <laughs> so it's just one of those weird things. I still cringe about that today. And this is the first time I've talked about it since, so thank you. Thank you. Uh, your chance to say sorry. And your final question now, Bobby, from the box. Say so where? When? Which record have you played the most? So would this be on air? Would this be at home? Can you do both? I think we probably uh, know the answer to at home, or at least part of the answer. Well, uh, yeah, exactly. In terms of just numbers, it's either Let's Go Crazy or Purple Rain, Yeah, just because that's when the obsession started, and I had the album, and, you know, one album, keep playing it. Uh, Let's Go Crazy, because I thought I was Prince channeling Hendrix at the end, and the whole point of Let's Go Crazy is not the song, it's to get to the guitar solo, all right? And then the other one was Prince, uh, Purple Rain, which uh, every time I used to hear it, I'd start crying because I'd imagine it being played at my funeral. And it was just a way of, I think, getting rid of pain from my youth. I put on Purple Rain, pretend I was at my funeral watching myself getting buried. Prince starts his guitar solo and then I'd start crying and I'd feel better. All right. And then on, sorry, on radio, I don't know. I had answers to that, but now... I've been at the BBC 20 years. Uh, I'm not so sure. Yeah, there is a, there's a track at the moment, Pasuri, which is a phenomena, and it's a Pakistani track. And usually Pakistani music is always 
second place behind Indian music, if you want to go down into the demographics. And at the moment, it's on something like 500 million views on YouTube, even though it only came out about five months ago. I haven't taken it off my playlist in five months, and that's unheard of. So Good recommendation. Thank you. Uh, Pubby, they were your five questions from the box. I've got one last question for you. It's the end of the world, and you, Bobby Friction, have to play the last three records on Earth. What would those three records be? Uh, okay. With Party, Prince would have to be involved. You know, this is a, a religion, so get used to it. And it'd have to be 1999. A track he wrote about Armageddon, about the last day of the world. That starts it off and it gets everyone in a good mood. I would then, oh, it's so hard, because I know the, the last track, but the middle track would probably, yeah, it would be Gurdas Man track. Gurdas Man is a Punjabi folk singer. So um, for me, because it's my Armageddon, I play Gurdas Man because he's honestly, he's like Shakespeare and Chaucer rolled into one with an element of almost being a bit of a rapper. He doesn't rap, but he's a Punjabi poet and he uses the, the folk, the, the street language of Punjab to communicate his points. And they're always really deep. And I bring up Shakespeare and Chaucer because he, he goes back to medieval India and take stories from medieval India to explain what's happening in the world today. And I'd go out with a track by Bishi, uh, a British Asian artist who, uh, well, she's British and she's Asian, but she doesn't make British Asian music. Uh, she plays the sitar. She's also a composer. She wrote a track called Albion Voice, which is one of the most beautiful poems, even though it's a song, set to music that I've ever heard in my life. And over the four minutes of this track, you've got the most sumptuous violins, but the most important thing around all the drama of the violins is there's a really simple tale about how the children of these lands are essentially from different parts of the world, but they're all part of the same tapestry. And she uses very medieval kind of sounds and very simple rhyming couplets to basically say, what I said at the night of the Sonys, which is, we're here, we're going to stay, the future of Britain is glorious, get to it, let's go. What a way to finish, Bobby Friction, thank you so much. Thank you, I love you. And that was How to DJ. Thanks for listening, please remember to follow us wherever you get your podcast from.